everyone. Welcome to the Charvuk Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. So there has been quite a bit going on in the Northeast for the last two months, especially in Manipur. Uh, I was constantly being emailed by regular listeners of the podcast that why are you not talking about it? Well, I take times to dis- take time to discuss things because I like to sit back, look at everything, then formulate my views on a subject and then go look for people who can speak very well so now this month i will talk about it and the first of such series of discussion is going to be with uh, rami desai uh, rami thank you for coming on the podcast vishal thank you for having me on so rami this is your first time on the podcast so i will uh, request you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself your background and uh, uh, how you got into studying the northeastern regions in general i know we are talking manipur but your expertise is more in the northeast in general uh, kushal uh, you know once again thank you for having me on and that you know that question deserves like a really long answer because you know it's taken me a long time to reach here but uh, i was always very interested in tribal communities for the sole reason that and this i mean i was very interested means at the age of 10 you know i was very interested because i used to wonder why there was such a distinction and why all the conflict that i saw if well all the tribal areas that i used to read about had so much of conflict and also why there was so much of conversion amongst these tribes and uh, that led me to actually as an undergraduate uh, study theology so i studied theology which brought me to in my final year two very very interesting aspects of theology so theology can be divinity studies and pure theology which is very very interesting but uh, you know it also has uh, other segments which is uh, black theology or liberation theology liberation theology were the strategies and tactics that they used in uh, places like latin america the colonialists uh, which was based on the poverty politics of it and then black theology was a theology that had entered africa and what were the strategies and tactics and uh, you know uh, also what were what were the points of commonality or how did they approach these very remote tribes uh, with uh, uh, with the religion of christianity um and i studied this uh, for my undergrad i graduated in this in my masters i studied anthropology of religion which uh, really meant that i widened my scope of study a little bit and um, that is when i started applying it to the northeast region the years that i was studying the northeast mind you uh, in the 90s this was you know considered extremely remote uh, we only saw the northeast from the lens of um, you know something alien or you know it was something inconceivable for us to uh, travel there or to understand it it just seemed very complex because it was so psychologically distant to us and of course it was geographically also distant and connectivity was very bad so um but there was no way to study the northeast unless i went into the northeast so you know uh, about 15 years ago i started traveling the northeast uh, i started meeting with people civil society tribes insurgent groups uh, i set up northeast policy institute which was a think tank in guwahati in 2010 um i started research writing on all sorts of topics um and as i always say uh this is a region it's not a state um so it can take you a lifetime to understand it uh it's very difficult to 
you know, ever say that uh, I know this area fully or I'm an expert on this area because it's just so complex. So that was my introduction to the Northeast. And I've done a couple of books, uh, uh, you know, with Manipur University. Um, and I have also looked at the role of anthropology and sociology, the social sciences, in looking at civilizations and tribal societies. Fair enough. So, so Rami, uh, for the benefit of uh, the viewers who are going to watch this on YouTube and the ones who are listening to this later on on Spotify or whatever audio, audio platform they are on, can we start by summarizing why is Manipur burning for the last two months then? Kushal, uh, uh, you know, these are historical issues. Uh, there is no one way of looking at it or saying why is it burning you know, give me a snapshot. Um, you know, these are legacy issues. So by legacy issues, I mean uh, the issues that are vested in not just when the British came into these areas, the policies that they created, the identities that they created, um, uh, you know, their way of administration, their way of looking at all of this, which has given birth to the land issues that we have today. But also it has something to do with... Uh, uh, you know, the infiltration that is coming into the state, the perceived demographic change, uh, the fact that uh, the Maitis feel threatened that they are limited to the valley, which is, uh, people say 10%, but if you remove, you know, a lot of the infrastructure, the road, things like that, it's about less than 6%, uh, wherein they are the majority of the population, but, uh, uh, and they don't have scheduled tribe status, uh, wherein the hill tribes that live in the hills and occupy 90% of the uh, state land are smaller in population. Um, the genesis of this conflict, we'll have to go into, you know, deeper, but uh, the present violence generally started with a high court order that said, uh, you know, the Maiti should be given a scheduled tribe, not be given, they've recommended, it was a suggestion. So the high court, uh, high court cannot decide on these matters, right? So they can only suggest to the state government and the state government has to suggest it further and there are multiple, multiple, multiple layers. But the high court decided based on a petition that was filed in 2013 that uh, they recommend that the state recommend the Maiti community to be included in the scheduled tribe list. And uh, therein began the conflict. So, all right. So, so you mentioned there are historical reasons for uh, this conflict, and okay. So, let's get into the history. So, 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 so the two aforementioned uh, in court tribes in this uh, in this are the Maitis and the Cookies, right? If I get uh, if I if I'm getting it correctly. So, what is the history? So, maybe we can start with the history of both the tribes. So, what is the history of both the tribes is very important to answer because I'm sure the conflict lies somewhere in the history itself. So, okay, let me take it a little further. You know, um, the advent of the British was, you know, a great impactful moment on the Northeast. You know, some people will want to look at it in terms of, uh, you know, they brought in the English language, they brought in the Christian religion, but also, you know, um, you can look at it the other way around, that they brought in this skewed method of studying populations that were completely different to theirs you know so in 1757 there was the battle of Plassey. that's when the uh, british set their sights on the northeast region and um uh, at that point they saw it as 
really like the northeastern frontier, you know. So they knew that the Chinese were across. They knew that this was strategically really important. This was not lost on them. They knew that this uh, was very important in terms of tea trade. They knew that the routes were really important in terms of trade towards Myanmar. You know, so this was really, really important. But these were really difficult terrains to come into because um, tribal populations lived along, you know, the hills. And um, they were not, you know, they had their own administrative systems. They had their own dealings with uh, the Maharajas that were, uh, you know, around their areas like the Maharaja of Assam or the Maharaja of Manipur. And uh, they didn't appreciate any of this disruption. But however, because of uh, the constant wars between Myanmar and Manipur at that time, Burma, um, there used to be constant wars between them you know, the Burmese were a formidable army and uh, they used to keep uh, attacking um, the uh, the Manipuris, uh, which at that time were the Maitis. And uh, there was also called the seven years of uh, devastation, where for seven years the Myanmaris ruled um, Manipur. Uh, but tired of this, the Manipuris at some point asked the British for help. And history repeated itself because the British came in, uh, you know, there was a decisive victory in the first Anglo-Burmese uh, uh, Anglo war, and um, subsequently, they became the protectorates of Manipur. Um, of course, there was a Maharaja, but, um, you know, the British were pretty much like, you know, running the state, and everybody kind of knew this. Now, what also happened at that point is that they would be confronted with constant raids. And these raids were not just uh, by the cookies, but it was very well known it was by the Nagas as well. You know, they'd come down the hills when British uh, companies would be going by and loot them or kill them or, you know, not give them right away. So British figured many things. So in Nagaland also, they figured many ways to keep them in. But in Manipur, they figured that let us bring some cookie populations and put them in the foothills, you know, so maybe as buffer, maybe as protection, you know, and uh, this way, you know, maybe we'll be able to mitigate some of the raids or some of the confrontations. Um, now, that is one history, right? Like that's one history as to why they were brought in. Now, we must remember that uh, these tribes are contiguous to a lot of the border areas across the border. So you have the same tribes who will be in Myanmar, you have the same tribes that will be in Mizoram. Let me also clarify this, that Kuki is an umbrella term, like Naga is an umbrella term. These terminologies came much, much later. There are sub-tribes, so the Nagas are 16 plus sub-tribes. So there'll be Ao, or there'll be Angami, or you know, Tangkul. You know, there'll be tribes like this. So under the Kukis also, there are the Maas, the Pertis, you know. Um, so there are sub-tribes. So all these little groups of tribes come under a larger umbrella called the Jin Koki tribes, which basically they're bound by some level of common language. The languages may not be exact, but some level of common language. So giving that background, uh, obviously the Koki side says that they've been here forever. Um, you know, and the Métis and the British records say that they were brought in. And that is the 
history of the cookies in the Maltese being here. Having said that, it's really, really well known that um, um, the Maltese kingdom, you know, has expanded, has decreased many times over. And um, when the British were in Manipur as well, it was not just the valley that they were ruling. You know, they were ruling, you know, lands far beyond that as well. You know, of course, uh, they brought in a lot of uh, rules and regulations to keep hill tribes away. And that became a point of, uh, you know, sort of discontent. You know, eventually that became the reason of very, very uh, sort of cemented identities. So, for example, uh, the British had policies of exclusion and isolation. So all the hill tribes that bothered them, you know, they mark them as excluded areas. So excluded areas means that they're excluded from the reach of any sort of administration, British administration, development, uh, any sort of um, uh, equal sort of uh, reforms that are coming into the rest of the country. Um, they also brought in what is called the ILP, which I'm sure all of us are very familiar with, the inner line permits. Uh, there was an outer line also, there was a middle area also, the middle area, they only had political, uh, uh, they only had uh, uh, sort of political dominance over, but uh, the inner line beyond that, um, you could not go in. So the British decided who went in and who didn't. So for many years, even post-independence, uh, at least in Nagaland and all, um, there was a hesitancy to go in because you needed a permit. You couldn't just enter Nagaland. Um, so, you know, across the Northeast, these kind of uh, laws of exclusion, isolation were brought in post-independence also. Um, uh, they continued. And this created these huge divisions. But then going by what you're saying, I mean, how many cookies were present in Manipur in, let's say, 1900s? Well, not a lot, right? No, no, not a lot. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they say that uh, from that point, uh, uh, you know, uh, from being a small population, they increased to about, uh, I think, uh, 14% in 1999 and they say 16% later, you know. But, of course, uh, the question is not of the population, uh, of the cookies per se. Uh, the question that in this situation that plays a role is illegal infiltration. Now, those are not going to be counted, right? And there seems to be large numbers of infiltration coming in that is settling in not just tribal areas, but also protected forest areas, which, you know, is beyond the valley. And that seems to be the problem of the demographic change. All right. Got it. Got it. So then you you talk about demo demography and uh, the demographic change. Now, when we talk about demographic change, is this at a uh, ethnic level, as in the, the, the level of the jati or the tribe, whatever word we want to use? Or are we talking about at the level of the religion itself? Um, I would look at this situation simply in terms of, uh, you know, um, a conflict that is based on land rights, uh, the demography based on infiltration. So I wouldn't really put a religious lens on it. Of course, uh, uh, we are well aware that the existing 
cookies in uh, Manipur, a majority Christian. Uh, there are, of course, uh, you know, Jewish, uh, there's a little small Jewish community also amongst the cookies. Amongst the Metis, there are Metis Muslims, there are Metis Christians, there are Metis revivalists, there are uh, Metis Hindus. You know, so uh, wherein when we talk about this clash, we talk about it in terms of Metis versus cookies. So I wouldn't necessarily put a religious lens on it. More so, I would put an ethnic lens if I had to. But then when did the cookies get Christianized? Like who Christianized them? They clearly weren't Christians in the early 1900s, right? There was a period of their Christianization, right? So Christianization in this entire region has been a very, very, uh, how do I put it? You know, it's been a very pre-planned thing. It didn't happen, you know, it didn't happen out of uh, some amount of, uh, uh, I don't know, spiritual experience. Um, because the way I look at it, spiritual experience, you know, happens rarely and it has to be very deep seated. And uh, that is what, you know, commands some sort of uh, change of religion. You know, if you look at it, and I have to say here that I've studied um, the Naga insurgency and its, you know, uh, and its parameters uh, in accordance to religious conversion far more closely than the Manipuris, but it applies across uh, the region. When the British came in, again, one of the reasons was that they could not control these tribes. You know, they were fierce tribes, they were very independent, they were rebellious, they didn't want to, um, they didn't want to have anything to do with the British. If you uh, also recall in Manipuri his history, um, the cookies fought the British for almost two years, um, you know, so they were very, very, uh, they were very unwelcoming of the British. The British tried this way, they tried that way to enter these areas, they couldn't. One of the also very important reasons for them to enter these areas was that the route that they used to go into Manipur went through, you know, close to the Naga Hills. And the tribes would come down and attack them. Even in Manipur, you know, tribes would come down from the Naga Hills and attack them, you know. So this would keep happening. And uh, there was murder and there was, you know, bloodshed. So the British decided that we have to do something. There's a very interesting uh, letter that I found that I often quote because that sort of encapsulates their intention, which was by one of the political agents who was posted in the Northeast to the secretary in, uh, of the government in England. And he basically wrote to the secretary, who's a very important man, and said that, look, you know, we are making a mistake in India by trying to convert um, the upper middle classes, the middle classes, you know, because they are really rooted in their religion. So what we should be doing is we should be trying to actually convert these, you know, these people that we found in the Northeast because they are so nascent in their idea of nationhood and that they are so uncivilized that we will be doing moral good and you know by introducing them to christianity now there was a lot of which all you have to understand it wasn't like the british just came in and there was no opposition to them there was a lot of opposition in europe to colonization you know they didn't really appreciate the government there were groups of people that didn't appreciate the government colonizing these countries because they said why do you want to interfere with their 
you know, local traditions, religions, you know, people thought that they were disrupted. And uh, so the British also, you will be surprised, took expositions of tribals from across the world um, in their very, you know, in their very raw cell in cages for expositions around Europe to show them off. Um, there were many African tribals, there were tribals from all over, all the countries that they had conquered in places like Paris and London to show them off to the common man. So the common man would come and see them as animals in a zoo and um, uh, to show them also that they could get some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of support uh, for what they were doing in these countries. So, you know, they'd showcase them and they'd say, look at them, you know, they're so uncivilized. The words that were very often used was uncivilized, savages and pagans. Today, it is our mistake and it is problematic that we self-describe ourselves as pagans. You know, because it has very, very detrimental connotations and consequences for us. But this is how they described us. And, um, uh, you know, and they won public support. So coming back to my story of this gentleman, this political agent who wrote a letter to the secretary of government, uh, to the government in England, in London, the secretary replied back saying, look, you know, we can't, uh, we can't give you money to have missionaries in because, um, you know, the public might object to it. So what we'll do is we'll give you money to uh, set up schools. And in those schools, you can hire missionaries as teachers. So that's what they did. And that's how we have the missionary schools that we do in the Northeast. Over and above that, what they did is they started introducing language. Now, like I said, a lot of the subtribes, uh, you know, we obviously now use these umbrella terms. For example, Naga. Naga is an umbrella term. Nobody self-identified themselves as a Naga for a really long time. Till very recently, I know, I know, uh, I have Naga friends who say that, like, you know, our grandparents don't understand the term Naga, but they never self-identified themselves as Nagas. They were all different tribes or different languages or, you know, sometimes even interwarring. And uh, as you know, that... Uh, even in Manipur, we had these Naga tribes, you know, same with the cookies, you know, it was a, a cookie is a general label. So they started introducing languages and they started teaching, not just English, but, you know, they've created their own language as well, Naganese, you know, which takes Assamese, local languages, things like that. And uh, the first book that they handed all of these tribals, and this is the same strategy across the Northeast, all of these tribals was the Bible. So the first books that they started reading was the Bible. Uh, there's a very interesting, one of the diaries of Mary E. Clark, one of the first, uh, uh, one of the first uh, missionaries that went into the Naga Hills. The reason I bring in the Naga Hills is because it happened before, you know, the cookies, you know, uh, this was their first advent into conversion uh, after Meghalaya. So uh, they went into uh, the Naga Hills. Uh, they had a uh, they had a gentleman called Gautala Brown. He was, I think, the first Assamese convert who took them in, built some uh, relationship with the outright. And uh, it was Mary Clark's husband who was the missionary, but she is the one who wrote the diary. 
and you know there were little things like uh, uh, there was a there was a wild animal that kept attacking the village and you know nobody could uh, uh, get control of the animal and uh, the doctor mary clark's husband dr clark dr clark gave a injection and the animal died and you know the villagers because they were so innocent they said oh my god you know this is the hand of god you know so whatever you say must be the truth and he got his first bunch of followers you know so it was very innocent way of entering but let me also tell you that it took a lot of time for them to convert so it wasn't like they came in and within the first 3 months they converted a bunch of people anywhere you know it took them decades and decades and decades and it was really tough but if you look at the ratios you will find some of the majority of the conversions have happened post independence during the times of conflict you know and one of the reasons for that in my opinion is also a lot of post uh, conversions a lot of gunpoint conversions we still today see this happen in places like arunachal you know where there is some sort of threat perception of insurgent groups we've also seen a huge jump in conversion so in 1901 where there would have been 0. i think 4 or 5% or 7% conversion in arunachal today they say it's 40% and if the census was ready to come out and everybody was ready to be included who's converted it would be as as much as 60% so you know as much as we can say the british brought the missionaries in the british had an agenda to convert these areas to convert tribal communities we also have to accept that majority of the conversions happened post independence so then uh, so then can we blame nehru it's <laughs> it's can because nehru's tribal affairs advisor mind you was very elven who was a white missionary you know yeah. so so you know it uh, it's terrible in terms of i have always had a problem with the western lens of looking at ancient civilizations like ours you know so if you have somebody like barrier elven he can later on in his life go and say that i'm a hindu i'm not a hindu but you're you're classically educated in colonial subjects so subjects like anthropology sociology these were subjects of the uh, civil service services examinations so they were taught these subjects because it was important that they went in when they went into new territories they could first do an anthropological sociological study of the communities before they made their advent into these areas so there were at that point kushal there were great great scholars like uh, bhuriyev the head of bombay school of sociology who uh, argued and debated with barrier elven because barrier elven wanted isolation and exclusion for tribal communities even post independence on the basis of the fact that uh, they have uh, they have a very uh, uh, special cultural and traditional way of life and we must preserve it um whereas gurya said that you know a that's going to be terrible for our country because we are at this point of integration and you're going to keep a complete you know you're going to keep complete communities of people out of the development processes that they deserve equally as everybody else 
Number two, we have lived side by side with different ways of life for as long as we can remember. There have been connections in the past. There have been ancient literature connections. There have been ancient historical connections. In Harshwardhan's court, the uh, uh, king of uh, uh, the Maharaja of Kamrup, uh, Bhaskar Varman used to travel so often. He, he met Huan Sen in Harshwardhan's court and he invited him to Assam and some of actually the history that we know of the Northeast. We know from Huan Sen's eyes, you know. But I'm saying there was this kind of connection. There's also ancient historical connection where Parshuram Kund lives in uh, uh, Arunachal Pradesh, uh, where uh, one of the major tribes in Arunachal Pradesh say that they are descendants of Rukmani. You have uh, 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 the Metis who, you know, or tribes in uh, Manipur as well who say, oh, you know, Chitrangada came from here and this was her kingdom. Hidimba, Dimapur, they say, comes from her name. You know, so there was all this connectivity which kind of was like cut off. And Guria's argument was that um, that should not happen. There should be reminders of this sort of ancient connectivity. There should be reminders of uh, um, how we have lived side by side. And that can only happen if you don't have these rules and regulations that exclude them. Number two, the development process would be very unequal. You know, so other areas would be developed and tribal communities would not be. And this is what we are dealing with today. Uh, number three, as we know, a lot of us know that missionaries were allowed in. Others weren't. You know, so it wasn't a level, level playing field. So um, obviously, you know, there are uh, questions that without any doubt can be raised on Nehru and Nehru's policies, but also Nehru's idea. Uh, in a way, I feel he was so Western educated, his lens was so Western, and you know, he possibly wanted to identify himself as a Western man, that even his lens of how he looked at tribal communities was from an anthropological perspective, which was a Western perspective, which was a perspective of, we are, you know, we are looking at these communities as the other not as us. So there was this whole sense of otherhood that was created between tribal communities and the rest of India. Over and above that, there was such, they were so bad at cartography. If you look at how the Northeast is connected through that chicken's neck, you know, uh, it's just, you know, it's awfully imagined because the widest width of that road is 22 kilometers. So not only does that make it psychologically distant, but that also brings in a lot of hugely important security issues for us. So, so you're saying uh, Nehru had an etic view, not an emic view. I don't think Nehru knows what view he had, right? <laughs> it, you know, in all honesty, I don't think so. You know, sometimes if you read his book, sometimes he says, "I'm a pagan," you know, but I'm a Hindu, but I subscribe to the pagan way of life. But I don't think anybody, you know, he knew what he was saying. You know, at other times he says that, um, uh, you know, uh, these are exquisite people, you know, that, you know, we should preserve them. You know, this is, I, I mean. Oh, so they're museum pieces too now. Oh, how it, nice. You know, that for the British, it's always been that, you know. And I would believe for, the, for Nehru also, it would be the same thing. He had very relevant, you know, he agreed to isolation and exclusion policies, you know. How do we undermine the intelligence of tribal communities in not being able to self-determine their own future? 
you know, I mean, uh, India is full of communities that have really exclusive cultural uh, practices, traditional practices, um, who are geographically limited to certain areas. Uh, they've all they've all been mainstreamed and they've managed to preserve whatever their identities were uh, in terms of their culture, their traditions. Who are we to undermine the decision-taking ability of a tribal community that we feel that we are the owners, that we should give them all these protective uh, layers? Uh, and what is the what is the gamble that we've taken? What is uh, what is the consequences of this? You see, it has national security issues that are attached to it because you've left this region, which is so strategically important that the British had figured out at that point. Let me also tell you, Prashant, uh, when the British were leaving, you know, they were running out of money. They spent huge, vast amount of money. Also, let me, on a different note, tell you that uh, the most expensive war that they ever fought uh, in the history of British colonization anywhere in the world was the uh, Anglo-Burmese War for Manipur, which, uh, uh, you know, which at that point they say they spent about $5 million or whatever, but they say it goes into billions if it was today. You know, so anyway, so wow. point being that, you know, uh, the British were leaving, they were leaving India, but they still had a plan. Alexander Mackenzie once said that the Northeast was our manifest destiny and that we would not rest until every tribe, every people, every community in the region was governed by us. And while they were leaving, they wanted to make this manifest destiny come true in terms of they wanted to keep the Northeast as a crown colony. So they'd leave India, yet they'd have exclusive rights on the Northeast and that would be a crown colony. So they would govern over the Northeast. However, things were so bad for them by then, financially and politically, that they couldn't afford to do so, luckily for us. And why would the British want to have a crown colony? Because A, they realized it was a great natural frontier. It was really rich in resources. Uh, the British were always looking towards resources. So one of the reasons that they also brought in these protected forest areas which disrupted the tribal way of life, let me tell you, was not to protect forests. You know, it was because their usage of timber was increasing. Because mm -hmm. they were shipbuilding at such a fast rate that they needed the timber and the timbers timber was going to come from these areas and Myanmar. That was the best timber that they could get their hands on. So also they protected not just northeastern forests, but forests across the country where they faced rebellions because this is what tribal communities depended on, not just for their sustenance, but also there was a lot of spiritual experience attached to these forests that they considered divine in many places of India. So the British knew this. The British also knew that if they converted this into a Christian region, they had a base. And this base could be countered to use, you know, uh, against uh, China or against trade wars. And it was just, in Southeast Asia, it was just a very, very uh, exclusive area to have. And we've seen later on, they've done the same with South Korea. They've done the same with East Timor. So this wasn't a new idea. You know, this was a really, really... We knew that this was a crucial area, yet when Nehru came in, he chose the policy of non-interference. 
you know, let's not give it infrastructure, let's not give it this, let's not change British laws, you know, 150-year-old laws, let's just continue with them. I don't think he understood uh, the politics, the dynamics, and um, the demands of the Northeast people very well. But beyond that, there wasn't political will either. Um, and I just, it's, it's shocking for me that the British clearly indicated to you how important these areas were. And you chose to ignore it. Today, however, through the Actis policy and things like that, you know, it's become a part of our mainstream consciousness that we realize how important yeah. it is to us. You know, but for a long time, when I was growing up, I'm sorry to say, and I'm sure all my Northeastern brothers and sisters would agree, that they felt like they were othered. And I think that is a shame to, you know, for a civilization like ours that is so ancient and that has lived side by side with all these communities forever. Yeah, I I, I think in Nehru's case, you can make it the classic case of the bigotry of low expectations in a reverse or a, on a steroids version. Nehru had, uh, Nehru never cared for these people. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I'm no... Uh, nobody who hides his affiliations. I've never been a fan of the Congress style of model uh, or model of governance is because it is very, uh, very condescending to minorities or to the other, whatever the other is. And on the pagan word, I look at it like this. No matter what the history of the pagan word is, I think I own the pagan tag, just like African-Americans and Africans owned now the N-word is because, yes, it was used as a you know, slur against the pagan, but I own it now and I'll use it now and I'll remind you why you used it then. And uh, to me, it is very important that we always have the pagan world in our linguistic arsenal, in my personal view, and I'm not abandoning it, is simply because I want to remind. And just like that, I say this, my friend Harsh Madhusudan Gupta also says this, that they're trying to do the same with the Hindutva word. And we should own Hindutva as a word too, because they are doing the same thing. It, it, the strategy is very, very standard. You use a word and you keep disowning it, maligning it, maligning it, just like the Christians or the Abrahamic religions did with the word pagan. Um, it happened with the uh, African community and the, the N-word. Now, today, because of the rise of India and, and the, the change of the politics in India, it is about Hindutva. And everybody should own these words, which is why I, I have barely any agreement with the Hindutva side on most issues. They're socialists. I'm not. Uh, most of the things they, they promote, uh, uh, I, I don't agree with. But I still own the Hindutva tag for these very reasons. And I think the pagan word should be owned up by everybody. Deep down inside over here is also a conflicting situation, as in, you know, people will say, oh, these were unique people. I mean, unique in what sense? I like the fact that you mentioned there were ancient artifacts there because a lot of times uh, people start saying things like, oh, they are not Hindu. Like the, the term Hindu itself, what is the origin of the word? What are the modern day connotations of the word Hindu? In that sense, was there uh, Hindu in the modern sense in the past? I mean, Diana Eck talks about a sacred geography where there was something that, uh, you know, that kind of um, united people from uh, Kashmir to Kanyakumari or way beyond uh, Kashmir too. And, and what was that um, sacred geography? But we are talking about um, this particular conflict. Now, 
what 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 has this conflict now the problem is somebody says like you know it's, it's, i sound very uh, very conspiratorial here but jaise pakistan mein har time hota hai na to log bolte ra ki sajish hai ye ra ki sajish pakistani is the standard line for everything is ra ki sajish but how much of a role has burma china nobody wants to talk about the role of china in this and uh, and and uh, and maybe uh, other nations uh, are involved in kind of propping up this conflict from our okay. national security perspective okay so um, you made a couple of points and uh, as we are not really short on time let me address point by point i've had this conversation with uh, harsh as well on paganism but i have very strong views on paganism because in my opinion paganism was only and only in reference to and um the roman empire boundary you know so uh, it wasn't a question of rural non rural it was only in reference to the christian community and in reference to the roman empire boundary that they were converting over and over again um risley herbert hope risley who really uh, created a lot of foundations for us which now a lot of times we negate also you know he has an interesting exposition on paganism he did a comparative study between actually what paganism was and um, what hinduism was and he said one of the biggest difference is that a there was no spiritual quality because they didn't follow you know um, there wasn't a spiritual existence to what we call pagans today you know whereas if you go to a common man and this is what he's written if you go to a common man in india the most average illiterate uneducated poor person and if you were to ask him to talk about some um, more elevated ideas like life or death he'd be able to do so with a great amount of spiritual sounding this is what he's written you know so which um, indicates a certain difference of not just theological but spiritual um superiority to what paganism was and therein comes my issue with the word paganism that a it's applied to us by you know maybe somebody else but wrongly so but it's also applied to us from a missionary lens the minute you self claim as a pagan there's literally like a uh, there's literally like a target point that they find and it you know you won't convert or the third person won't convert but uh, somebody who's remote in remote areas impressionable like we've seen in the northeast would because you're saying you're not superior i'm superior wherein the fact is even if you were to look at tribal communities the superiority of their administrative systems the superiority of their spiritual systems is something that we haven't even begun to delve into we never talk about it you know so that is my take on paganism and of course we can have different points of view on that your second point was unique people absolutely this idea that we'll decide that you're unique and unique not in the way that you know we are elevating your status so we are calling you unique because you know we think you're really smart but we are calling you unique because we think you need to be saved by us you know and this is absolutely i think um, um you know this is uh, um this is absolutely condescending um because i think that everybody needs to be given that credit to have 
a place on the table, which I think tribal communities were not given by them. But uh, your third point, which now goes off to the uh, role of uh, Myanmar and international agencies. Um, you see, the problem with the Northeast is that it has huge borders. So it has over 1,600 kilometers of land border. These borders are not easy to plug. Um, they are highly forested. There's huge amount of uh, difficult terrain. Um, fencing is only as strong as your weakest point in the fence. And um, that is not going to help. But also, we have a historical problem with these borders. Is Again, the way we've mapped it out, we have contiguous tribes across the border as well in Myanmar. Um, you could call them cousins of the tribes that live in some parts of the Northeast. Now, what happens with that is uh, that demands some level of loyalty and that gives you a base. Historically, insurgencies in the Northeast have been given shape across the border. So if it was Tripura, NLFT was trained by ISI in Bangladesh, um, and that's where they used to train from and come into Tripura. Um, if we were to talk about NSC and the longest running insurgency in this country, it got its training in China. It got some amount of ideological support in China. Um, it used the it used the pathways of Myanmar to reach China. So the leadership of NSCN actually trekked all the way to China. The reason it got support is because it had cousin tribes on the other side who themselves were fighting insurgencies against the Myanmarese uh, government. So um, this has always been the case. We also know this. Uh, not just because we know that they were trained there, but we also know the weapons that they use. You know, a lot of the weapons are Chinese made. So this will always be a threat for us. And now what has happened is that after the Tatmadaw has come in, um, they've cracked down on a lot of the Chin Cookie groups as well, um, amongst other groups, insurgent groups in Myanmar. And um, there's been a bit of an exodus. That exodus has just not been in Manipur, but it's in Mizoram as well. And um, it's an umbrella term called zone nationalism, which includes Kukichin tribes. And uh, uh, Mizoram also is has commonalities with these tribes. They're all under the same group. In Mizoram, however, there has been some amount of registration of the people who are coming in. So there's been about 30,000 refugee registrations. In Manipur, there has been none. So, you know, that brings up the question of uh, why has there been no registration? Why don't we know who these people are? Why are they not identified? How do we know that these are not trained militants that are coming in? How do we know? We already know that there is uh, poppy cultivation. Um, we know that uh, derivatives of this sort of cultivation lead to heroin. We know that one of the biggest problems that states like Manipur and Mizoram deal with and have dealt with is a, a drug problem amongst its youth, is the high rates of HIV. So why should it not be a concern? Why should infiltration not be a concern? Now they say that there's a 16 kilometer area this side of the border, that side of the border, where you can come in, do trade, you can go out. That is perfectly all right because that has to happen in Again, cultures, civilizations, traditions, tribes that are so old, 
you can't just demarcate them like that. You have to give them some amount of leeway. That's fine. But if there's, self, uh, if there's settlement and if there is a demographic change, if there is illegal activity that they are involved in, then it's a matter of concern because we have historical basis to believe that um, insurgency can take some shape or form with the help of our unstable neighbors. Now, uh, uh, for example, if you look at uh, Myanmar, Myanmar has also taken out a notification for the Myanmar citizens that are presumably in uh, Manipur, um, which says that uh, please do not cause any disharmony amongst your host population. Please do not uh, indulge in poppy cultivation or any other illegal activity. Please do not indulge in any sort of militancy, otherwise there will be consequences. Now, why has this happened? People will say that this doesn't solve your problem, right? Yes, it doesn't solve the conflict problem. But there was a point when the Tatmadaw came, uh, took over, where a lot of us said, oh my God, we must push for democracy. We must bring in the democratic uh, station back into Myanmar. It's not our job. You know, it, what our job is to keep our neighborhood first, in line with our neighborhood first policy, to keep good relations so that at times like this, we can get some amount of support from them. Also, if we don't get support from these states, Kushal, 40% um, of the debt of Myanmar is owed to China. You know, where is Myanmar going to turn to? It's going to turn to China, which poses a bigger problem for us. You know, so it's very important to have good relations with especially uh, neighborhoods that are difficult. And all, unfortunately, we are in such a precarious position that all our neighborhoods are difficult. So you see Bangladesh, there's a huge threat of uh, Bangladesh if it ever becomes radical, if there's ever a change of dispensation. Again, the chances of insurgent activity might increase because we've already seen that happen with NLFT. You know, it can have multiple levels of impact. With Myanmar, if we don't keep good relations and if, you know, we don't at least play a neutral role the chances are that it will lean more towards China. You know, we've already seen uh, China's advent, not just, uh, you know, in Myanmar in terms of businesses and industries, but we've also seen the takeover of Cocoa Islands, which is 55 kilometers away from the Andamans, you know, and, um, you know, this, you know, this kind of tells us their movement. Also, again, we've had NSE and train with them, you know, so these, these, countries and our neighborhood plays a huge role. We have to keep good relations with whatever the government there is. We have to keep ourselves in mind. And it's very important for us to keep the Northeast region very safe and secure and prevent this sort of situation like what has happened in Manipur from happening because it jeopardizes our Actis policy. And that is, that is a huge centrality of uh, the government, it's a central policy of our government because it plays a stabilizing role. It doesn't even play a stabilizing role just in the Northeast, but it would play a stabilizing role, you know, uh, and a connecting role right up to Southeast Asia. Okay, so one major thing that uh, I wanted to ask you about was 
this 2008 suspension of the operations agreement between insurgent groups and the government of india now who do you think in your opinion were the major you know beneficiaries or benefactors of that 2008 soo uh, i mean a lot of pe- i mean i've seen pictures and i'm sure you are aware of that i mean there are private armies in certain areas and uh, and then there are the assam rifles also so and uh, do you think the assam rifles have held their head high in this entire process too so uh, with the su operations it took 8 years for the obi singh government to negotiate these operations uh, the beneficiaries obviously was the state of manipur because you know without a doubt it is uh, um without a doubt it is of great benefit to any any community if militant groups are laying down their weapons and this is what happened you know they laid down their weapons they surrendered their weapons with the clause that they would not take in more recruits however from the information that i have there have been more recruits and um that is a breach of the agreement also um if you were to ask me personally um obviously i was not on the negotiating table and i'm sure people who are negotiating these terms and conditions have a tougher time than we would imagine um one uh, key would be with uh, the insurgents the militants and the other key would be with our forces where the weapons were kept the armory uh, we've seen like we've seen this time round that these weapons have been looted and i don't know how good a decision it is to have any sort of these sort of assault weapons these heavy duty weapons floating around in the country no matter or in the state no matter where they are because if violence like this breaks off you have access to them now there are 4000 weapons floating around i think uh, uh, about 1500 have been surrendered um but even 3 and a half thousand weapons now these kind of weapons are not going to go in your hand my hand or the friends i have amongst the kuti community or the friends i have amongst the maithi community these people or we would consider ourselves rational we would consider it uh, dangerous to arm ourselves with these weapons having said that whose hands are they going to they'll be the miscreants they'll be you know people trying to gain a pound of flesh somebody who's not scared of the law and that becomes really dangerous so i think um, you know this is a, a bit of a difficult uh, negotiation to do so there's nothing good or bad about it of course they surrendered um, their their complaint is that uh, to come to the fulfillment of all their uh, you know agreement points it's taken too long uh, it's still sort of hanging in the air but that's the way these things work uh, we've seen this with the naga agreement also the nscn agreement the first agreement that the government of india signed um when it came into power in 2014 with the agreement with nscn im which is the naga based manipur group uh isaac muiwas group uh, the other being kaflang's group which was functioning out of myanmar um but um, that agreement also right now is taking a long time to come to some fruition so these things take a long time it takes uh, leadership uh, on the end of the militants as well to come to some sort of uh, uh, some sort of dialogue which has you know which has something concrete that comes out of it see you cannot be stuck and this is how i look at it you can't be stuck on your demands to the point 
that it remains a stalemate. You have to see space to come to some amount of conclusion. And um, if that doesn't happen, then leadership gets old, leadership dies, doesn't have power. What are you going to negotiate? And it's going to keep your people also in a limbo. So, yeah, and the other problem with the Sioux operations was also that the 14 Sioux camps, again, this is my opinion, surrounded the valley. You know, now, if these camps are surrounding the valley, there is some amount of threat perception that the people of the valley are going to feel. You know, so that it's problematic. It's not easy to solve. But I wouldn't really cast any doubt on our security forces there that there are huge amount of limitations, you know, for example, sealing the border. You know, our security forces cannot do it just by manning it. This is over 1,600 kilometers of border. Um, so, you know, these are very difficult situations to comment on. Easy to comment from the outside, difficult to really play it out. But don't you think the government has to be criticized? I don't care which government. I've never hidden my voting options and voting patterns uh, on this podcast. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm a BJP voter. I've, I always state it upfront as uh, as a person who is talking to people. But it doesn't matter. Uh, don't you think the government has to be criticized about the way it has handled this, even the current conflict? Like. So I'll give you an example. So uh, what I did was I went on social media. I went on Google and other search engines. I typed cookie and I get a version, right? Uh, then I go to center left to Marxists and I type Christian evangelization in the Northeast. Complete negationism, complete denialism of anything to do with Christian evangelical. Then I type mighty. And I type mighty plus Indian right wing. Okay. Complete uh, doomsday scenario. Every mighty is going to be murdered. Uh, this is Kashmiri Pandit uh, version happening in India. The Indian government is useless. The Indian government is incapable of anything. I'm literally telling you what happens on social media. Now I understand the algorithm only pushes doomsday scenarios so whether it's doomsday of the left doomsday of the right basically at the end of the day doomsday wins but the point is what is the reality where do we hold the government accountable why aren't we talking about these things like every time every time when the blockade happens there are only certain areas that are blockaded not all areas that are blockaded i'm talking about the economic blockades aren't these realities and 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 if you go to the cookies, they'll say, oh, we are being ethnically cleansed. You go to the mighties, mighties say they are being ethnically cleansed. Now, I might lean towards the mighty case more than the cookie case, but that's my personal view. I don't care. I could be wrong. And I will correct myself the moment somebody, you know, provides me with better information. But why isn't anybody questioning the government of the day? So this is a very complex situation. These are not uh, problems that have come up today. The cookies and maitis, the nagas, the you know the cookies and the subtribe paitis, uh have had clashes, massive clashes in 1997, 1993, massive clashes between the cookies and the nagas. You know, this is not uh, per se has anything to do with the government. This is inter-tribal rivalry, inter-ethnic rivalry, and this is a legacy issue. Like I said in the beginning, this is nothing new. It has happened historically. It continues to happen. Now, let us come to it piece by piece. Uh, 
yes, uh, you will find a lot of polarization. I've often said this in a lot of my debates that if I was to close my eyes and hear people speaking, I'd know who's a cookie, who's a mighty, because I know exactly, you know, what, uh, you know, points of uh, confidence they'll come with. But uh, having said that, that is going to happen because the communities itself have been historical rivals. Even the land issue, right, is not a new thing. The ethnic rivalry is not a new thing. There's a superiority, inferiority, uh, you know, victim card, all sorts of complexes that are involved in this also. And, uh, you know, to be able to put it in some amount of logic, we have to look at it from what started this conflict out. It was a recommendation of the High Court to the state government saying that the mighty should be recommended as a tribe. Now, any tribe or any people that are involved in this dialogue will know that this is a very long process. That just by a recommendation, the state cannot decide by itself. You know, it will go to NCST, it will go to TRI, you know, people will give their recommendations, um, you know, then it will go to the government and then so on and so forth. They will decide. Now, what is the basis of this conflict? Is the basis a new conflict? Uh, uh, is the basis a new base? Is the foundation new? No, it isn't. It's historical. You know, they've been fighting over, there's been arguments about this for as long as I can remember. And um, if you want to look at it from that point of view, um, yes, the Maitis do have a very strong foundation to demand for a scheduled tribe status. All right, so this was not something that came out of the blue. This was not something that uh, hasn't happened before. Yes, the cookies and the Maitis have never fought before. But has the rivalry existed? Yes, it has. So, for example, I met uh, a bunch of, uh, a, a very intelligent bunch of Maitis and I met a very intelligent bunch of cookies. And uh, one of the things the cookies said to me is that, oh, we were, uh, you know, Historically, we were called high tools by the Maitis, if I'm pronouncing that right, which basically means like, you know, smelly people, you know. So there's been this sort of like, you know, this sort of superiority complex as well. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, the cookies are adamant on the fact that uh, the Maitis should not get the schedule drive status. And there is no reasonable argument behind it is what I found. And that is my personal, um, you know, opinion. If, you know, 54% of your population is staying in less than 6% of the land mass, do you understand what is going to happen in the next 20 years? This is going to be a, a ghetto-like situation to live in. Um, there is going to be complete abuse of resources and um, there's going to be an implosion. You know, it cannot go on like this. Now, out of the 90% of the area that the cookies have, and they'll disagree with me, you know, in terms of they don't want to cede an inch of space, but the 90% land that they have, um, out of which majority of the land is not habited. So if it's not habited, then why not share it? Because eventually, Kushal, what is going to happen? You know, you want development, you want infrastructure, you know, you want all of these things to come in. But with that, migration also comes in. 
you will need space for the migrant workers who will come in. You will need space for the infrastructure that you need to develop. You will need space for the growing population that you have. And this sort of hardened lines is what the problem is. Now, when it comes to uh, when it comes to what the government should have done, what the state government has done, not done, you know, there can be many, many points of view on this. But let me tell you, all situations that have happened in the Northeast largely have taken a very long time to resolve because, A, there is huge amount of emotions attached to, you know, uh, any of these conflicts that have happened. Um, there is huge amount of connectivity to their land. So any sort of... Uh, compromise on territorial integrity either way um, creates a huge furor um, also it's very difficult to find uh, voices that are consolidated from any of these tribes so for example um, what does it mean by a scheduled tribe uh, why are the Maitis asking for a scheduled tribe because it gives you privileges what are the privileges it gives you the scheduled tribes have uh, the tribal uh, communities in uh, Manipur have autonomous district councils. They have hill autonomous district councils. So they can they can do a lot of their own decision making. A lot of power is vested in these councils. You know, I, I do know that, you know, they want further powers. But, you know, there's exemption of tax. You have 31% reservation in administration and education. You... Um, you can make decisions on education. You can make decisions. You can levy taxes. You can make decisions on healthcare. There's a lot of power the, these hill councils have. The problem is again because there might be a lot of tribes and sub tribes. Like I said, the sub tribe of the Cookies Paitis. There was a huge clash between the Cookies and the Paitis as well, right in 1997. Because there isn't some amount of. Um, unified voice between them a lot of decisions in these hill councils can't be taken you know so there isn't a unified voice from any side even if you see the Maiti side there isn't one unified voice asking for one thing so the deliberations dialogue become very difficult number two the role of CSOs civil society organizations there are dime a dozen there are so many civil society organizations that it is actually difficult to keep track of them and you don't know who is supporting whom who is where who is being funded by what you know they make uh, radical statements of their own volition now all this adds to the confusion now the state government has 34000 troops in manipur yet it is so sensitive that it is very difficult to control any of these groups. This is this is the kind of military experience that we are having in Manipur at this point. Because everybody decides that they can, one organization can take this one on, the other organization can take that one on. You know, individuals can take each other on and now they are armed. And how do you go against women or children? One, how do you go against your own civilian society? Becomes a problem because that civilian is representing a community so it will enrage the community as well so i don't think you know of course it is our democratic right to criticize and look at it very critically but if i was to look at it from a very very logical point of view i would say that you can't envy the position that they are in yes 
when it comes uh, to the fact, I must agree that uh, um, before this hill, uh, uh, before the scheduled tribe inclusion thing happened at the High Court, tensions had been building up. And um, I, this might have been the trigger, but things had been, you know, things had been happening. So apparently, it is also said that uh, 38 villages from protected forest areas had been removed uh, by um, the chief minister and his administration without any dialogue. You know, so this became a bone of contention. And then subsequently, other little things started happening because there was a crackdown against poppy cultivation and illegal infiltration. And um, there wasn't the right sort of communication. So, of course, this is a bit of a problem. But um, nobody is surrendering arms. Nobody is coming on the drawing board. Out of all the CSOs that we have, we don't have one civil society organization that is made up of cookies and metis saying that we are willing to at least have a dialogue. So if your civil society is not on board, then in areas like this, it becomes very difficult to come to some sort of a conclusion. In the same way, it is very, very difficult to stop drug trafficking or it's very difficult to stop infiltration if you don't have civil society on board. Because how are you going to stop? You know, there, are, there have been so many cases where it's the local villagers. There have been like uh, cases of examples of Kachin women who have given information to forces of unknown people entering the borders. You know, so this is the kind of effort in a situation like this that we'll need. We can't leave it wholly and solely. Of course, we have expectations of the government. We have expectations of the state government. But again, we are a democratically elected government. Now, you see, uh, everybody wanted uh, the chief minister's resignation after Rahul Gandhi's ill-advised trip. I don't know why he went to Manipur. He's not a great researcher. He's not a great field worker. What was he going to do there? And that also at such a sensitive time. What happened? There were late night protests. In response to that, what did the uh, chief minister get? He got a huge show of strength. So everybody was expecting, if you remember, for him to go to the governor's house to give his deliver his resignation. And it was backtracked because there was this huge show of strength. You know, so, so all these dynamics play a role. But I have always held that civil society will have to play a major role in this conflict, maybe tapering down, but also tomorrow, all these fault lines that have been created, these divides that have been created to bridge them. Because eventually the cookies and metis have to live together, their kids have to go to school together, their women have to work together. It'll have to be a role of the civil society alongside the forces. Interesting, because uh, as far as uh, this conflict is concerned, even on the role of civil society, NGOs in India, you know, a lot of time this this thing is being made about that, oh, India has a mammoth number of 2 million non-profit organizations. It's not as large as people make it out to be. It is one NGO for every 600 odd people in India. If you compare it with the United States of America, the United States of America has approximately 1.5 million non-profits for a population of 313 million. So that's like 209. Uh, it's like three times of India if you look at the per capita basis. So I don't know why why people make it out as if, you know, NGOs uh, are like France, obviously, people, we, we non-profits, I think France is 66, UK is 20, 72, 
और सेवेंटी थ्री इटली इज टू हंड्रेड यूएस इज टू जीरो नाइन इंडिया सिक्स हंड्रेड किस वॉट चाइना इज थ्री थाउजेंड दे डोंट हैव एनी नॉन प्रॉफिट ऑर्गेनाइजेशन एक्सेस अ लॉट अबाउट चाइना डजेंट इट kind of money that's connected where it's dispersed what it's dispersed for um you know so of course that you know uh, more often than not they are agenda driven and which makes it very dangerous in a uh, complex area like the northeast i had a follow up question on this non profit thing too how much of a role dirty role have certain non profits played in fostering these ethnic lines religious lines um as the famous term made famous by rajiv malhotra the breaking india forces uh, look there are enough there is enough data out there i'm not saying all ngos i'm not silly to make that statement there are certain ngos that play a very dirty dirty role in some cases these ngos are also associated with the church in many ways we know what happened during the kudankulam protest if you remember what happened during the nuclear plant protests everybody knows what was happening and everybody just sits there and wonders oh what is happening nothing is happening so 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 what role have the ngos played in you know these these conflicts in the northeastern region you know they played such a huge role especially uh, missionary led uh, ngos missionary yes. led organizations um let me give you the example of the nagas you know what is their demand the naga demand is not of a separate state it's of a separate country right what is the flag what is the slogan it is nagalim for christ they want a christian country now how did they get converted how secular of them how secular <laughs> of them of course you know uh, but um, you know for them they don't even claim to be so it's very clear it's nagaland for christ of course you know i'm talking about it's certainly not at its peak and i think the younger generation has realized that this sort of uh, you know indulging in uh, these sort of dreams are never going to happen you know it's like uh, uh, unfortunately for the cookie organizations also they thank god don't want a separate country but they wanted a cookie land a separate state um that sort of territorial uh, compromise is also never going to happen the government of india has made it very 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 clear without any uh, ambiguity and i don't think the people of the northeast or the other tribes in um, manipur will tolerate it either uh, unfortunately so you can want whatever you want to but it's all going to happen so the same way i think people it's dawned on nagaland that it's better to be a part of the development bandwagon than it is to be a part of insurgency there were times when i used to go there and um uh people would tell me about uh, why they can't run their businesses because there wasn't one extortion group you know because splinter groups are formed there used to be multiple extortion groups so on a monthly basis they were paying taxes to multiple different groups um but that is obviously you know uh that is the you know that is a thing of the past there's a great amount of normalcy that's come in but again the question comes down to how were these missionaries gaining this sort of you know entry into these areas who was funding them um you need a lot of money to travel in these areas and in those days you would have needed more money to travel because connectivity wasn't as easy as it is today um 
who was funding them how did they have the money how did they stay on for years um, you know these are these all areas that are riddled with missionary schools they have so many ngos um all these ngos are also run by people of uh, you know uh, people with this inclination towards uh, missionary activities uh, it was very evident like you didn't need to really think about it uh, jawarlal nehru's time jawarlal nehru actually maybe one of the only good things that he did in the northeast was he expelled reverend michael scott reverend michael scott was caught um he was uh, he was uh, negotiating between the nagas and the government of india he was chosen to negotiate amongst other people except he was also found um he was also found uh, trying to negotiate with the chinese to get their support you know so that uh, he could uh, negotiate with the government of india he was expelled by nehru because of anti national activities uh it was also said that uh, weapons were being brought in uh, in uh, and it's a very famous uh, uh, missionary sort of ngo weapons were being brought in in boxes that were marked with this ngo mm -hmm. to arm the naga insurgency so mm -hmm. the connectivity of these kind of organizations and their role in promoting this sort of insurgency is nothing new um i mean um, it was almost like they shared these states so like manipur became uh, sorry uh, nagaland became uh, this thing baptist one state became presbyterian uh, but you know what you'll find very strange is the anglicans didn't play a huge role because the they anglicans didn't. no because the anglicans were so scared that they'd get so much of flack back home that they gave it to these guys but also these guys came with more money so some of the establishments that you see kushal are in like really remote areas and you see the kind of land that they have amassed you see the kind of facilities that they have there's clearly somebody pumping in a lot of money in the, these areas and uh, i think that is not lost on anybody and that is not lost on the people of uh, the northeast either yeah i think uh, the vidya bharati schools now coming up all over um... the northeast i think they have lended a certain level of balance to the state of affairs over there like i i don't think people realize that the sangh as an organization has its highest cadre in the northeast and in kerala these you two know, states but you know i've traveled because i had the opportunity to travel these areas when they were very conflict ridden and then i have had a opportunity to measure it over a period of 15 years um one of the organizations that i found that did some of the most phenomenal work and this is in some, the hot spots of insurgency so these could be in changlang and pirap in uh, the northeast where there used to be a lot of nscn uh, uh, activity going on there or in haflong where uh, we used to have dhd uh, another insurgent group you would always find banwasi kalyan ashram schools and banwasi kalyan ashram schools the whole um, setup of it is so impressive so impressive um i remember uh, i remember going to haflong and these were the days you didn't have you know mobile phone connectivity wasn't available all over so bsnl would work but airtel vodafone wouldn't work so you had to go to like an std and call and what not there was obviously no place to stay you could not stay anywhere so if you you know you might stay at a villager's house or something 
or then I found, you know, you, a Banasi Kalyan Ashram school there and I could stay there. And these were very basic schools, but very clean, very good. But they were hostels. And the reason that they were hostels is because some of the tribal communities came from, you know, such remote places that would take them two days to walk back and forth. So what they did, and they also realized that, you know, once they went back, they'd go back for a longer period of time because it was so far to go, that they would uh, have two-year tenures. And the parents, of course, could come and meet them and all of that. But they'd get to go back home after two years. Every two years, they could go back. These schools were so wonderful. They were run by people who did the service for free. So there was a State Bank of India bank manager. This lady had retired and come to give two years of her life as the principal of this school. I mean, you know, for a lady in her late 50s to come to a place like this, leaving her family, her home, her comfortable environment during her retirement to offer her services for the welfare of tribal communities was to me an exceptional display of character. And I think um, these are the organizations, these are the people who have not only taken the threats in some of the worst times, but have also established a counter narrative, which would have been wiped out if we had left it the way we had to all these foreign organizations with foreign interests. I agree. And people don't realize the amount of, uh, there is a difference between how the sung functions in these areas and and the church functions in these areas. The sung inculturates in a very different way. Like people don't realize. I have met personal pracharaks in in my capacity over the years who have been stationed in the northeast, and they say that yes, we're not uh, uh, beef eaters. Um, but uh, when we go to the Northeast, we don't impose our views. And there are stories of individual uh, pracharaks who... Um, yeah, absolutely, Kushal. Uh, who have consumed I... beef because that's the required job profile mm -hmm. and they will consume beef. Well, I have seen them in the remotest of areas, no matter where I could have gone, what I could have done. Uh, you know, there were schools like this, organizations like this, people like this. We lost a lot of people in the Northeast as well during militancy. Uh, even when I used to go there, it wasn't considered safe, you know. And this was when there was relative peace. You know, I'm talking about 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. But we've had people be there in the 80s, which was the peak of insurgency and shot dead point blank. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot that is to be owed to them, but also, yes, the important point that you made is I have never seen anybody, any of these organizations trying to enforce any of their own uh, beliefs, uh, whether it's social, religious or political on any of these communities. On the contrary, very much in line with what Bhuriya said, is the question is not of... Uh, the question is not of establishing a, a common religion or common practices. The question is of reminding them of their authentic identity, which due to this kind of activity, they had forgotten. And the minute they start doing that automatically, because again, these are old civilizational connects, 
you know, the integration begins to happen because there is so much of common ground. In a lot of remote tribes, you will find um, Pitrapaksh. You will find um, a Gram Devta. You will find people doing Bhumi Poojan. You will find people associating the symbolism of a snake to Shivji. You will find, you will even find um, uh, Mahabharata or, uh, you know, uh, Ramayan uh, written from their own point of view in terms of, from the point of view of Valli. You know, so there is one of it that is written from the point of view of Valli. Nobody is trying to impose anything. But the fact is, the, the virtue in this is the, that you have a more integrated society. And it's, it's not one over the other. But it's just rediscovering your roots that tie you to each other. Exactly. And that is the Indian way. That is the way of dharma. That is the way where even a person like me, who is an unabashed charvak, who doesn't hide his disbelief, is still considered a part of a society, an equal stakeholder of the society. So, Rami, I know that we are almost uh, an hour and a half in the chat. So before we wrap things up, are there any last parting words that you want to make? I'll, I'll hand it over to you now. Well, there's, uh, I think we've discussed a whole array of things, you know, uh, there really isn't a lot that I have to say, except the fact that I think, um, you know, this conflict has become now too prolonged and it has huge amount of emotional impacts. It has a huge amount of security impacts that we are going to have to deal with for a really long time. Um, I hope that both the communities can come to the drawing table, but with the understanding that they'll have to cede some space, you know, and um, they'll have to understand the historical foundations of some claims, as well as, so if the Metis say that we have historical claims, which is in all of the census rep uh, records um, uh, from the British time, um, cookies have their own problems in terms of the hill areas are not developed enough. We don't get enough of the budget there. You know, so these are all things that have to be addressed. Um, with the understanding that, you know, these communities have to live together because there is going to be no territorial reorganization of the state. This is what we need to understand. And so we have a limited framework to work with. And within that, we will have to come to a conclusion. Fair enough. I hope this conflict is resolved as quickly as possible. Um... At the end of the day, these are all Indian citizens, whether we like it or not, and nobody who's a citizen of India should suffer. And uh, the the law of the land should reign in supreme. And uh, I'm personally very, very uh, much in favor of the STCA status for the, the Métis because they deserve it. If they are oppressed, they, uh, you know, if a community is oppressed, then they should get the benefits of that. Yeah, but can I add something, Bashal? You know, this ST status thing also that we keep talking about, nobody knows what it means. You know, if who constitutes a scheduled tribe? Uh, there was a local committee report which gave it characteristics, which meant shyness of contact, isolated geographically, you know, um, certain special customs, rituals. If we were really to look at it, majority of those communities who are in scheduled tribe list today would not meet those criteria, apart from really the tribes in Andaman and Nicobar or whatever. You know, so I think I think it's important to also see things in present time perspective. Yeah, but in, at that time, basically, it was the Avarnas who were given the SCST status. 
the avarnas, um, people who were not in any varna no but this is the, what i am quoting is a 1970s report of the local committee because before that there weren't any stipulations of what a tribe should be you know post independence this is you know one of the major landmark committee reports that came which, yeah i am aware of this 1970s yeah. report so this gave characteristics and one of the most important characteristics was shyness of contact isolation of geography you know so i think so, uh, if, so all introverts can claim st status correct you know so <laughs> so i think all these new thing you know these hardened views need to be softened a little bit and one needs to understand you can debate anything either way keeping in the context in mind fair enough i i i see where you're coming from and i i i remember reading that 1970 report it was kind of silly uh, i just when when i was like they were trying to define it. i was like you guys are stupid but then in india everything that that has decided in these ways i mean i mean as a as a person who leans libertarian on many issues i and i'm very sympathetic to scst reservation for multiple reasons i've done podcasts explaining that uh, from a historical perspective also and from a legal perspective but yeah it is what it is but i hope this uh, issue gets resolved but rami thank you very much for coming on the podcast it was a pleasure right. talking to you and hopefully uh, we will have many more such conversations thank you very much for having me and it was a pleasure being here thank you All right, guys. You can uh, once again. Uh, this is for everyone, whether you're an audio listener or watching this on YouTube. Uh, in the description of the podcast, you will see Rami's uh, Twitter handle and the link to her YouTube channel. So you can go and subscribe to her YouTube channel too, and you can follow her on social media. As far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. If you want to support the Charvak podcast, uh, first you can. start by subscribing to this channel liking this video and leaving a comment in the comment section then you can if you want to go to the next step you can buy the merchandise on kushalmehra.com or on kadak merch or you can support this by becoming a member as you know this is a member driven podcast i don't do ad reads i have stayed away from ad reads i do get offers i don't do them and uh, it, you can become a member on youtube patreon fanvo wherever you are or you can send your donations to upi i will see you guys next time until then take care bye